You made it. You know, last week I overdressed, and so some of you saw as I came down, I, mean, I was just sweating. I felt like one of those rotisserie chickens at Kroger. But I think this week is going to be more like one of those chicks at Rural King. It's just going to be kind of nice. Like, you wish you could have some of these lights. And so, uh, I don't know. Uh, no, I'm just so glad that you're here. What an appropriate song. Thank you, Allison. And this idea that, that Jesus is the resurrection power over our circumstances. And what, what Ian just read for us, not just that, but even in his sovereignty, he actually will see he's going to use our circumstances to point us to see who he is in being the resurrection. And so this morning we have a lot to cover and to walk through. Um, in fact, we're going to, we just read Jesus, he meets with both sisters, right? And we're going to see how he has these two particular meetings um, that end up being very different, very distinct from one another, but both for an end goal of coming to find Jesus in the midst of their pain. And so if you're still in your Bibles, um, we're going to be in John chapter 11, and we're just going to read verses 17 and 18 to start. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so last week we saw Lazarus, or Jesus, his friend Lazarus is dying. And here he is now, he's dead. He's passed away. Um, and last week we talked about how Mary and Martha, they sent for Jesus. But instead of going, he waited. And we walked through the difficulty of this delay. And so actually this morning, we're going to build on this. We're going to continue this, what John and, and Jesus showed us in the first 16 verses. And one of the first things that stands out as we pick up here in, in verse 17 and 18, uh, one of the first things that stands out is how many people made it here before Jesus did, right? Like last week, we appropriately and we understandably thought through the lens of this family and the pain and this waiting, how they must have felt. But after service, uh, Jason Cook, after service, had this really impactful insight, like how, how Jesus must have felt. Like he was struck as he followed along how Jesus was obedient to the plan despite the pain and the suffering that he must have felt too. And so I was struck by that all week and I couldn't stop thinking about that. How in his own sovereignty, like this is actually welling up within him, sorrow that he felt because he hurts for us, right? He hurts for us more than we do in our suffering. Like Jesus in this text, he is not callous to any of this experience. He cares more than anyone does. Like in our lives, he cares about us more than we do. No one loves us more than Jesus does. So as he approaches this grieving family, he is walking up knowing what he's about to do. And yet we'll see him express deeply how he feels. In fact, his delay, it only increases how he feels. But it's also because of this love and his perfect wisdom that he delays so that he can reveal what is truly needed. And I love this because in this delay, there could have been all kinds of reasons for this, but he doesn't stay back to come to impress these people with who he is, but rather because he wants to impress upon them with who he is. And that's a really important distinction. Like he doesn't exist selfishly needing glory from other people, but he exists perfect in his glory and exists selflessly for eternity, looking to display his goodness to others. And I think here at the very beginning of these verses, we see subtly one way that this is how. Um, if you're familiar at all, you might've heard this. So Jewish rabbinic belief uh, held that the soul would hover over the body for three days. Maybe you've like read John chapter 11, or you've, like, you've heard before that there's significance to the four days of waiting, and there is. Um, because the Jewish belief was that when someone passed away, that their, their soul would hover over the body. Now, nowhere is this found in the Bible, but rather this is just from tradition that was taught and passed down. So not saying that it's true, but it was widely believed um, in centuries following this first century story. Uh, but after three days, a period of time of de uh, decomposition would set in, and the body would begin to decay. 
And it was believed then that it was impossible for the soul to re-enter the body. Like death at this point was irreversible, right? But Jesus waits. And when does he show up? Day four. Like you have to see John's foreshadowing here. Like isn't this good news? Like the author of life is coming now to a believed irreversible death. I'm not going to preach Chad's sermon for him next week. But nonetheless, John is wanting to point us to to see exactly what Jesus plans to do. And so, but we'll keep uh, continuing verses 20 through 27, because he's going to speak to this, who he really is. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Okay, so Martha here, she goes and she sees Jesus and she goes to him. And just imagine the emotions that she feels now. Like maybe giving herself the permission to finally feel now as she goes. Like, like think of what she's been through, what she's experienced in this past week. Like we don't have to be experts in first century history to just stop for a second and imagine what it would have been like for two sisters to try to nurse their dying brother to health while waiting on Jesus to get there. Only for him not to show up, right? Like there's no hospital, there's not an ICU, it's just them trying to keep their brother alive for Jesus to get there in time. But Jesus didn't come, and their brother died. Like this is the setting. They have just watched their brother die. And I want to be sensitive because even from a personal standpoint, I'm mindful of some of this um, from this past year. But, But death is ugly, right? And it's difficult, and there is deep struggle that precedes it. And these sisters have watched the brother go through this. Like, I picture them in the midst of this continually asking, looking up, asking others, is he coming yet? Has anyone seen him? Is, is he here? So when Jesus does arrive, this is all that led up to her saying, Lord, if you'd been here, a brother, he wouldn't have died. I mean, that's what she's saying. She's walked through this. And so the heart of what she's really saying is, Jesus, where were you? Like, why were you not here? Because really what she's asking is, Jesus, like, why did you let this happen? Right? Like, I know who you are. I know what you can do. You can imagine this disappointment, the confusion, even the doubt. But she, because she believes what Jesus can do, she, she believes in him, right? But Jesus, literally, he wasn't there for her brother, right? He wasn't there for her. He wasn't there for her brother. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, in our time this morning, we're going to see how Jesus responds actually to each sister, as I said. They're each going to come to meet Jesus, and Jesus will meet them in a particular way. And so the first thing that we just read is we see that it's with truth that Jesus comes to Martha. He comes and he meets her with truth. Like Jesus looks to her in all of her hurt, and what does he do? He doesn't do anything, actually. He speaks, right? He says something. And what he says is, he says the truth of who he is. He looks to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus meets Martha in all of her hurt, but instead of coming in time to save her brother, 
he waited. And then he came to her claiming to be life. Right? He didn't come to save her brother from death in time, but rather he waited to come to just claim to be life himself. And I can imagine in all of that, questions had to be rattling around in her mind. She had to be asking, but Jesus, I know you. Like, I know what you can do. But here's the thing. She really didn't yet. And this is precisely why Jesus waited. And so before we unpack what Jesus is really doing here and why he says this, that I am the resurrection and the life, I think we need to first understand what he's really saying about who he is. Because there's actually two options in that claim. I am the resurrection, I am the life. One is that when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, this could be him referring to the same thing, like one thing, a way of reinforcing through one point through reiteration. Like the use of the word life is just illuminating what Jesus means by being the resurrection. But in reading this week, it's far more credible and I think helpful to understand that these are two, and while obviously closely related, but nonetheless independent claims that he's making of who he is. We see this in verses 25 and 26. There's actually two clauses that support this. But you might be saying, for our sake, like, what does that mean? Or, or, or why does that even matter? Well, here's why. See, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, he's speaking to the power and the reality that he has to bring back life, to resurrect what is decayed and dead and make it new again. Right? Like the power to not only speak life from nothing, and he's done that in creation in Genesis, but he also has the power to bring life back from brokenness and even death. I mean, this is what Jesus is the first fruits of. This is what Paul writes in the letter to the Corinthians, right? That one day we too, because of how he exists, will have real resurrected bodies. That just, just as Jesus walked out of the tomb after dying on the cross for our sins, he did so in a real resurrected human flesh to forever be like us, meaning human and to forever be with us. And as he did it, it is also with the promise that then we will one day forever be like him, resurrected, and forever be with him. Like This is the promise that Martha, in great faith, right, professes to believe, the promise of the resurrection in the last day. But Jesus wants her to know that there is more to the promise than just that. Not less than, and no way less than, but there is more, because he's the resurrection and the life. You see, if the life that Jesus claims to be is related to him also being the resurrection, but not just describing merely the resurrection, this means that this life isn't something that we will just one day gain in the future, right? In a post-resurrected post world. But it's something actually given to us right now. Like, see, it's often understood that this life that Jesus claims to be and gives exclusively tied to post-resurrection life like one day in the future when he makes everything right. Life lived in a resurrected body that Jesus will bring us to. That this life that he promises, it's coming one day, but not yet. But Jesus is pointing Martha and to us to something even more. Uh, this scholar named D.A. Carson, in, in taking this claim and looking at verses 25 and 26, says this. If the last half of verse 25 stipulates that the believer, even though he or she dies will nevertheless come to life at the resurrection. The first half of verse 26 stipulates that the believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection life, this side of death, will in some sense never die. In fact, this is the recurring theme in the Gospel of John, the repeated promise that those who believe in Jesus will immediately, immediately, meaning now, we have access to it now, possess life. Now, why is that so important? 
Well, because it means for Christians that death is really just a doorway. Like we sing this, right? Sometimes in our song, Christ Be Magnified, meaning Christians actually move from life to life. Or in another way of thinking of it, in the same way, in the book of Romans, that it says, those who are living, but not a Christian, that they're dead in their sins. Well, in, in another spiritual reality, another reality, for those who are now alive in Christ, they never die. They continue to live. Like the implication of this then is that Jesus is saying that real life is given to you from him, this side of death, before death. A life so real that it makes even our dying not really death in a way. It's a mystery how he could say that, but that's what's being drawn out here. We don't just have a promise then of a one-day resurrection, but we have an eternal life given to us now, starting now, even proceeding when we die. And understandably, like I say all this, I realize death is daunting to look forward to. But this is from Jesus' perspective, not from ours. And from his perspective, the life he offers, he says, eclipses this. And it's because he is the life. And he doesn't wait until the resurrection to give us himself. So when Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life, and asks Martha if she believes this, he's asking her then if she believes not just in what will happen, but in who he is. Like he's inviting her to receive him fully, to know the truth of who he is, before he gives to her all that he's come to do. Another way of thinking of it, Jesus is saying, Martha, like, I know what you're hoping for. I know what you're longing for because I feel it too. It's welled up in me. But here's what's true. Martha, you have a deeper need and that's what I want to meet first. Like instead of then keeping her from doubt or despair by saving her brother, Jesus allowed her brother to die so that he could come to her, so that she could finally know what her heart most needed. Like understandably, And clearly in this passage, the flow of her heart is despair. That's appropriate, right? But Jesus, he's wanting to push against the flow of her heart. And just to be clear, when Jesus speaks truth, he's not rebuking her to push against, but rather he's pushing her to know what she longs to be true. Like Jesus is meeting her doubt with truth so that she can truly have the hope that she yearns for. Jesus is saying, the thing that you wish I could do for your brother that power that you're hoping that I can channel? Martha, that's who I am. Like, I don't just give resurrection and life. Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus is saying to Martha that there is a far greater need, something far greater lacking than just keeping her brother from dying physically. And what he's telling her is that what you really need is me because I am God and I am life itself. The hope that she longed for then, it shouldn't just be limited to bringing back this life. But the real hope that Jesus gives is eternal life in and of himself. And so Jesus is telling Martha in the midst of all her pain that not only will life be restored and raised, but even more profoundly, she and all who believe have access immediately, currently, today, to the very source of life, the author of life. In essence, Jesus in his response is pushing past her hurt to the loss of life to an even greater need of life that she had yet to receive or experience before. It's him and himself. So Jesus comes and he meets Martha with truth so that Martha would know Jesus. What's amazing, after all this, another sister is going to come into the story. 
And what we're going to see, instead of with truth, Jesus meets this next sister, Mary, with tears. And so let's read verses 28 through 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man? Could, or could he, not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Okay. So after this, after this, Martha's sister Mary, she comes to Jesus. And what does she say? The exact same thing. Like, look down. The exact same thing. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's verbatim, right? Word for word. In verse 21, Martha says the exact same thing. So how would we expect Jesus to respond? Well, the exact same way, right? I mean, she said the same thing. You'd think he'd say, well, well, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? But is that how he responds? No, no. How does Jesus respond to Mary? Seemingly the complete opposite way, right? Instead of pushing against the flow of her heart sadness, he enters into it. Like he stands alongside her grief, and all he can do is begin to weep. Like, all he can muster up to say is, where is he? Where have you, where have you put him? And these two radically different responses, not only do they point to a profound relational wisdom that Jesus obviously possesses here, but again, they also reveal an even deeper truth about Jesus' identity. Uh, Tim Keller, in one of his books, does a great job unpacking a lot of this. And so this idea of meeting the truth and with tears, um, but he, he speaks to this meeting with with. With Mary, and here's what he says. He comments on how this reveals who Jesus ultimately is and how he's different than any other God or religion. And what he says is like, imagine making up a story about a divine figure who comes in the disguise of a human being. And in this story, this divine figure arrives at his best friend's funeral, knowing that he has the power to raise his dead friend back to life and knowing that he's about to wipe every tear from every mourner's eyes when he raises him back to life. And the question he asks is, what would you then imagine the inner emotional state of that person to be? He says, it wouldn't be smiling with anticipation, like, like internally joyful because he knows what he's going to do. Maybe, maybe even externally a little bit playful because he knows what it's about to happen. But you would never imagine that such a character would get completely sucked up into Mary's agony and just stand there weeping. But here's the thing. This isn't a story that someone made up. I mean, this is an account revealing who Jesus really is. And what we learn is that he is not just a God disguised as a man, nor a man with a hint of deity, but he is the God-man. And he encounters us to show us that he's both God and human. Like when Jesus met Martha, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's a claim of deity. He isn't just saying, I can revive Lazarus. I have a special power. He's saying, I am. I am the power, pointing to that he's God. 
But that doesn't explain fully who Jesus is. Because the next moment, Jesus breaks down sobbing, entering Mary's grief, when she says the exact same thing as her sister. Like, Jesus' response to Martha is because she needed to know that Jesus is fully God. But Jesus responds to Mary this way because he's also fully human, and we need to know that as well. So this is good news. Because not only does Jesus know then the hope of our truth, because he is it, but he also knows the hurt of our tears. It's both. Not one or the other, it's both. Therefore, not only can Jesus do something about your sadness, but Jesus can and has stepped in and knows fully all of your sorrow. Like, we're going to get there in a couple, couple months probably. Like, I don't know exactly when. I don't know at our pace. But we're going to see Jesus praying in the garden, entering in, entering in, taking on the sorrow before he goes to the cross. And we see it here. He loves Lazarus. He loves Martha. He loves Mary. And this profound and personal love pulls him into weeping. And it's amazing because no other religion I know of is there a weeping God. Yet this is exactly what Jesus does. But it's also here, I think it's even more incredible and even more important that we see um, an act of his love because not only does he weep, but in this weeping, it's actually from a place of being enraged. See, underneath this, we actually even draw up more of how Jesus responds. Like when Jesus looks at death, John says in verse 33 that he's deeply moved and greatly troubled. Now, our translations don't really do justice for this. Um, to be honest, it falls pretty far short in getting conveying the meaning here. Uh, it's because th- this phrase, deeply moved, can and maybe should be translated indignant. Uh, like the Greek word here is literally translated like, to snort with anger. You might think, what does that mean? Well, it's this etymology here draws from like a picture, if you will, of like a horse or a bull or a beast whose like nostrils are like flaring with anger. And so I, I just picture like 1990s Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls logo, right? Like that's what, like you can just enter that logo there and you understand it better. Like we could translate verse 33 as he is outraged in spirit and troubled. And that really changes the complexion of the passage, does it not? Like, we, we tend to exclusively think of this passage as one of grief and sadness, and he feels that. But what are we to, to make of Jesus' anger here? Like, not only does he weep, and he does, but he weeps from rage. So we have to ask, like, what is he angry at? Well, what's bringing these tears out of anger? Well, it's death. Like in the fullness of the face of evil and sin and suffering and death, Jesus looks at it and he's moved in righteous rage. But even more astonishing, and this is the part we have to see, and this is what Micah so beautifully, I love every time you do communion. That should be the sermon, but this is what you're getting at right here. Jesus knows full well that the evil and the sin that brought death into the world, that which he hates, it's tied to those he loves. It's us. It's because of us. It's because of what we've chosen. And this is, what, this is what makes what he does so much more incredible. Because he isn't angry at people. He weeps with them. Even though evil and death, it's our doing. But he didn't come this time to bring judgment, but rather to bear it so that he could defeat the death that he hates while winning and buying back those he loves. If that's the case, surely then, like if he went and died for our sin and he rose again all because he loves us, Surely, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of suffering, in the face of death, 
We can rest in him and his love as he continues to care for us and he's already conquered for us, right? That's what he's saying here. And I think in light of this, I think from this passage then, there are two simultaneous realities to our relationship with God reflected in this story. And I think these two realities are actually woven together throughout the narratives in the Bible as people who live in a fallen world while anticipating it to be made right. Again, this already not yet tension that we experience as Christians. And here's what I think they are. It's our wrestling with God and with his truth and our remaining in God and in his love. And those feel and sometimes are very different realities that happen simultaneously in our life. Like what we find as we read story after story is that wrestling with truth is a necessary experience in our relationship with God. But this is rooted in his pre-existing, pre-eminent, permanent reality, which is the love of God that we're to rest in. Meaning the aim of our wrestling is to be brought to a place of rest and to remain in him. I say that because the last three weeks has had opportunity to sit in these two sermons like I've really felt the weight of what many of you are wrestling with. Like, one of the joys has been getting to know you. Like, I look forward to this more because I feel like I have a relationship with you. But it's been hard knowing as our relationship is built. Like, in the last few months, like, many of you have stepped into stories a lot like this. Like, this has become your experience. There's really been a lot of, a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, a lot of people that we've been praying for because of your experience. We know, like, I know this is... You, like, as we said last week, you're feeling the weight of waiting on God because you're in this. You feel this. You feel like this is your story. There's so much hurt, so many questions. There's, there's pain, there's agony, exhaustion, sadness, suffering. And some of you are naturally asking the question, why, why is this happening? And when God answers like he has the last two weeks, and he does answer, you may then be asking, why should you wrestle with choosing to have faith in him when you feel the way you do. Some of you are there and you're honest and he, and he invites you to be honest with him when, you, when you're there. But you're asking why continue to wrestle, especially when you're hurting like you are. I don't think of that. I think of wrestling in general. Like if, if you've ever wrestled before, um, I have a little bit. I don't really look like it. I realize that. Um, like in, in Harrisburg, if you don't play basketball, I think this is the way Coach Smith-Peters try to get kids to play basketball. Because if you didn't play basketball as a freshman, there, and there's nowhere lower on the totem pole, at least at Harrisburg High School, than being a freshman at the high school. Like everything else is segregated. You are just basically in your own little community. And so getting, instead of getting to participate in freshman athletics with everyone else, you have your own time in the morning before geometry second hour. We had to go wrestle in Bonnell Gym. And so for an hour and a half straight, we just went through wrestling practice. And I hated it because when you wrestle, that's the only thing you can concentrate on, Right. Like, it's all-encompassing, and it's exhausting, and you're thinking, I just wish I could shoot a little bit better. Life would be so much easier, right? Because it takes all of your energy, all of your concentration, all of your focus. And I think this is exactly why God position us, positions us in experiences where we have to wrestle with this truth through these experiences where there's deep struggle or pain. Because what we've seen over and over again, just in the book of John, is that God intentionally and sovereignly positions us in suffering and sorrow so that in it, we will come to see him in a way that we had not and would not have without it. But so that we will, in the end, not merely focus on the circumstances, right? 
but rather the circumstances that we're in, they will help hold our focus and concentration on him. Like we move to a place wrestling, it feels like all I can think about is the pain I'm in, but at a certain point, the pain I'm in actually refocuses me on the person who is God. It brings us as we wrestle in truth to that. Like often we think we need to get beyond what we feel. We need to get out of what we're experiencing. We need to get through this season, get past this pain. Or even like Martha, we think, The only hope I have is the last days, in the days of the resurrection when Jesus makes everything right. There I can have peace and I can find God. But the Bible shows us that God wants to meet us in the midst of the struggle, the suffering, the sorrow, so that we'll see him. And this is because there's a reality to our relationship with him that he will bring us to when we come to see him, not just in the faith of what he'll do beyond our current circumstance, but to see and to know him in the midst of it before he does something about it. This is exactly what he came to do with Martha, right? This is what he's bringing to her and meeting her with truth. But this is the same story told over and over and over again throughout the Bible. I mean, this is the story told over and over again in this very room. And in fact, there's one story in the Bible where God literally wrestles a man to illustrate this this spiritual reality. If you're familiar in the book of Genesis, um, Jacob ends up wrestling with God. Have you ever asked yourself, why of all things wrestling? What a strange thing. I don't know. Why did he wrestle? And so if you're not familiar, here's what happened. Here's the story of Jacob really quick. Um, Just 40,000 foot view. Essentially, Jacob had spent his whole life lying and cheating and deceiving and chasing. Interestingly, what was already promised to him but he couldn't rest in that and wait for that. And so he ended up stealing what God said would be his and tricking his dad into giving him a blessing over his brother Esau. But this actually led him to losing everything and he had to run for his life. After a long, long, long period of time, one day, years after being running and gone and away from home, he decides he's coming back. But he also knows in doing that, he's got to face his brother Esau, who as far as he knows, still wants to kill him. But this time he's coming back rich, and so he's devised this plan. One more plan to try to manipulate, uh, to earn favor, right? To, to change the circumstances in his favor. So he splits all of his many possessions and divides all the people who belong to him into two parties, and he sends them off ahead. And he thinks he can buy Esau's love, right? With these gifts that he's going to give the next day, maybe he can earn favor for himself. He can scheme one more time. But that night, as he's now alone and everyone else has gone ahead, he finds himself attacked in this wrestling match for his life, right? But as the story builds, this wrestling continues. At a certain point, Jacob stops wrestling to escape the person. And really interesting, he keeps wrestling to hold on because he realizes the person's God. I mean, this is, this is life itself. Like in the story, Jacob realizes it's God. And instead of trying to overcome and escape, he continues to wrestle. But the goal shifts to where he simply wants to cling onto and to remain with God to keep hold of him, to receive what he really needs, this rest that he's longed for, to be rooted in God. And this is what we see over and over and over again in the Bible. Like our end goal is rest, remain, to know and to live in light of God's love for us, to know and to have what Jesus revealed to Mary. This is why we wrestle. Not because we have to show God some measure of strength, but rather because in our lives, There's something that prevents us from truly believing or feeling or trusting or knowing 
They're seeing him for who he is. And I think it's important to note, this doesn't mean it's necessarily sin in your life. Like Jordan and Chad did a really good job teaching through John 9, pointing this out, that it's not always sin in our life, but sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a fallen and sinful world. And it's ultimately then out of his love for us that he allows our circumstances because he wants to meet us, he wants us to meet and wrestle with him. Because once we come to see him in the midst of our suffering and our sorrow and our sadness, we move to rest in his love in a way that we would not have before. And here's the thing. This doesn't mean that the hurt's gone. I mean, think of Jacob's story. I mean, he walks away changed, right? He walks away hurting. I mean, he has a limp that he walks with the rest of his life. But he also leaves freed, trusting, changed in the knowledge of who his God really is. No longer running because he, he literally can't. He can't run anymore. But now able to rest and remain in God's love, even in the ongoing pain. It's the same thing that God wants us to see, that in this surrender, in the wrestling match of control, in reality of his sovereignty, actually comes comfort. Charles Spurgeon says that the sovereignty of God is actually the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. That there comes a point that in relinquishing control, we actually find comfort because we trust and come to know that he is good. It is in this place where we move from wrestling with truth to resting in his love that we are now able to respond rightly in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Meaning, as we look at our lives, And as they feel like John chapter 11, and some of you, this is what life feels like right now. It doesn't mean that once we encounter God and what he says is true, that we no longer grieve. That's not what the Bible says. But rather, we are able for the first time to maybe grieve with hope. Like like in his letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he said in the face of death, he said, do not grieve without hope. Now, that's a double negative there. So what, what he's really saying is grieve, but grieve with hope. Both. Both are supposed to be true realities in your life. You're supposed to grieve and have hope. But see, it's only in wrestling with God's truth, with being honest with the tension of his eternal goodness and our temporary experience of evil, that we realize both grief and hope are the correct responses to who he is. Not one or the other, but both grieving with hope. This act of hoping, then, is how we ultimately remain in his love. And as we're about to close now, It's because this, this is what Jesus demonstrates in this chapter, like what he prescribes for us in this chapter. But more than that, this morning, the story of this morning family describes the real experience of Jesus as he encounters death. And so as we get ready to move to a time of response, of prayer, if you need prayer, of worship, of who he is, please see here, like in John chapter 11, how Jesus models perfectly what he invites us to experience with him personally. I mean, he walked through it, and then it's him inviting you to join him in your own circumstances. He's saying you can grieve, you can be outraged, you can be moved, you can hurt, you can weep, but he invites you then also to trust and to hope and to know with certainty that he will not only do what he says he will do, and he will, but he is who he says he is. And while he doesn't change our reality immediately, and I wish he would, we talked about this some last week, he will bring the change we long for eternally. Like it's coming because he's coming back. But even more, he who is life eternal will be with us immediately and permanently right now. 
He will come to us now in this place in the promise and the presence and the person of his Holy Spirit to both give us his life and his love in the midst of our hurt and to be with us as he brings us to a completely resurrected world where he says everything sad will be made untrue. That's all our promise is, right? As he remakes and redeems and resurrects all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, I'm so thankful for stories like this. That God, you don't just give us a manual of how to respond. But God, first you came, you lived, and you experienced it, and we just have the recording of your life. God, we see how you experienced this, God, and it gives us hope knowing even now, God, that you continue to sit in this. Like as you intercede on our behalf, as you now, God, go to the Father, Jesus, that in the pain that's represented in this room that's felt deeply, that you still feel it. God, that God, if you were in the next room over, if you were in our prayer room, Jesus, and we could just hear you speak the confidence that we would have, but God, just because you're not here that we can't audibly hear you doesn't change the fact that you're praying for us, Jesus. So I pray that we will wrestle, God, that we won't give up, that we'll bring you our questions, we'll bring you our pain, but in that, that we will see that you care deeply, God, and you're using this, but you're doing it first to draw us to yourself. God, God, in the face of hard circumstances, may we leave changed by your love. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.